Good evening, everyone. I'm Craig Calhoun. I'm pleased to welcome you. This is my first chance to get to welcome anyone to the LSC. I'm told that everything at the LSC starts five minutes late. I didn't know that before, but I'm trying to accommodate and fit in. Uh, this is a launch for two books and a discussion among panelists, and we hope among all of you. There are uh, two authors here. I can vouch for each of their books as uh, an exciting intellectual foray, as a very good read, and as something important. You will already be clear, I think, that evil is something important. And Michel Viviorca's book on evil, just translated into English, is a uh, very uh, thought-provoking look at the issue of evil in social theory and in society. You should, I hope, be aware, especially all of you as urbanists, of the importance of strangers in multiple senses of the idea of strangers. And Ashamin's book, Land of Strangers, takes this up um, uh, with a very interesting and important discussion of issues ranging from immigration and diversity through to broader senses of life among strangers as core to cities. In addition to these two speakers, we are fortunate to have two respondents to them. Clara Alexander, who is um, for a little while longer reader in sociology at the LSE, and uh, will soon be professor at the University of Manchester, who is the author of a forthcoming book, I think, still on, on Bengali, yes, and as well as many other related books and uh, works, and Richard Sennett, who is the author of a book that describes this entire process, a book called Together, that is a look at complex cooperation. And we are trying at least the minimum of, of complex cooperation to bring this off tonight. Our plan is that Ashamin and Michel Viviorka, in that order, will each speak for 10 minutes or so, um, outlining their thoughts. We will then hear from Claire uh, and Richard in that order and have a little bit of discussion, we hope, among the panelists, and then open this up for questions from the floor. So, with no further ado, Ash. Thank you very much. Uh, need some light. Though. Yeah, it is. In the front, it's light. It's light. Yeah, thanks. Well, before I start, can I just um, start with a few thank yous, certainly on my part, but I think on Michelle's part as well. We're very grateful to Craig Calhoun and Ricky Burdett for um, accepting this proposal from ourselves and Polity Press as well to have a, book a joint book launch. And I'd like to thank especially also Richard Sennett and Claire Alexander for uh, rising to the challenge and agreeing <laughs> as uh, two eminent authors in their own right to comment on our two books. And then finally, uh, we'd like to thank Jonas Shaw for organizing this event and, uh, to perfection so that we started only seven minutes beyond schedule, the scheduled time. <coughs> as time is short, I'm going to read, but I hope it won't sound as though I'm reading, um, because I want to try and cover a fair bit in 10. Craig, it might be just about 15 minutes. Is that OK? So an, an emblematic moment in the run-up to the last election was when the leaders of all three parties stood in front of the camera to berate immigration in front of a receptive multi-ethnic audience. Everyone agreed that this land had become too crowded, that Britons must be placed before immigrants, 
at a time of crisis, that this was not a matter of racial prioritization, that there were limits to cosmopolitanism, openness, and multiculturalism. And like so many times in the past, xenophobia and its easy political use was on the march again. But interestingly, on this occasion, perhaps it was just that day, this was happening with the consent of Britain's settled minorities. And it was happening with their consent in the name of crisis management, of defending a way of life. And this kind of juxtaposition of opposites we find also in various periodic surveys of social attitudes in the European Union. In 1997, the EU year against racism, one third of Europeans declared themselves as, in inverted commas, quite, or in inverted commas, very racist, with migrants and immigrants, particularly in the north of Europe, seen as a threat to security, national heritage, and liberal freedoms. But then, <coughs> three quarters of the people uh, surveyed still declared support for multiculturalism. By 2004, just four years on <coughs> after 9-11, and with deepening economic instability, 65% of Europeans were now overtly regretting multiculturalism, 25% wanted the repatriation of illegal immigrants, and two-thirds of Europeans, now both in the north and the south of Europe, saw the stranger <coughs> as a threat to the freedoms defined in 1997 <coughs> as quintessentially European. And these were, <coughs> in no rank order, peace, social equality, freedom of expression, tolerance, and open tolerance and openness to others. So in Britain and elsewhere in Europe, it seems that xenophobia and liberalism, however defined, are progressing hand in hand, allowing politics, politicians, and the media to feel that it is fair game to make game of certain strangers. Without guilt or reservation, asylum seekers, the Roma, Muslims, poor migrants, can now be spoken of as an encumbrance, as out of place, a threat to historical identity. Um, to be kept out or disciplined in the name, in the very name of liberalism, intolerance as necessary defense. And it's such a play on liberalism, this harnessing of intolerance to a specific account of civic freedom and cultural identity that interests me in Land of Strangers. And especially so because of a specific <coughs> conundrum. How does xenophobia find grip in a space of convivial multiculture and hybridity in societies that are constitutively mixed and plural. In the book, I approach this question in terms of, of a balance of force <coughs> between, on the one hand, circulations in public culture of what I would call incivilities of difference. For example, the musterings of the biopolitical machinery involved in naming some bodies, some uh, groups as ill-fitting, or indeed also deep-rooted vernaculars of everyday bodily judgment 
um, that bring some people out on the wrong side of things. So that's on the one hand. And on the other hand, I say that <coughs> there also exist civilities of indifference to difference, which are based on everyday negotiations of and attachments with spaces, objects, cultural domains, projects and interests, which are shared with others. My argument in the book is that the biopolitical, the technologies of managing, in Foucault's language, the society to be defended, is really the pivot of the balance between everyday encounters, practiced as a virtue of tolerance, or as, in inverted commas, a virtue of defense against the anomalous stranger. And it's my claim that it is this armory an armory of state-sanctioned tools of human selection, reward, discipline and control that turn the liberal compass on living with difference. So all I can achieve here, I think, is just to provide an illustration based on the chapter in the book on race. The contemporary escalations of race, more exactly, the coding of difference as an act of racial aversion, I think can be read in these terms as the play between three sets of encounter with difference. On the ground, daily urban life can be seen as a form of expert negotiation, negotiating of difference, and usually without rancor. We see this most clearly in the play of bodies in urban public space a normalization of being in the company of strangers through habits of co-dwelling. And I believe that this happens without explicit recognition of the other body, of the identity of, of the other body. With co-presence regulated by a number of disciplining... Okay, well, welcome back, everyone. <coughs> you were awaiting with a great sense of suspense the next installment <laughs> of Professor Ash Amin's discussion of the land of strangers. Okay, well, I'm not sure I can keep a straight face anymore, <laughs> but here we go. So I was saying that um, in the book what I tried to argue is that there are three sets of forces that intervene in, um, in, in, in regulating the, the politics of race you know, in, in the contemporary West. On the one hand, on the ground, I see urban life, or the encounter of people from different backgrounds in, a, in urban life, as really a form of expert negotiation of public space, in which the negotiation has very little to do with people's sensing of feelings towards other individuals in that public space. And there's a chapter in the book that, that tries to argue that what's going on in public space is almost a kind of uh, human training in, uh, in living in, in um, dealing with co-inhabited space. So there, if there's a conviviality at work, it probably has more to do with the ordering of space itself and how we as humans um, dwell in collective space than feelings of uh, togetherness or recognition. But then we also know from a body of work um, on uh, phenotypical racism, that is, racial labeling based on surface ocular 
uh, or other forms of sensory stimuli, um, that <coughs> this bodily training, even in public space, of an everyday nature, is loaded with affective emotional judgment. And here I think of uh, the work of Jason Lim on, on dance floor performances of racial cool and uncool, Arun Saldana's work on the, the enactments, the performances of whiteness and its inferior others on the beaches of Goa, Dan Swanton's work on how shiny cars, reverse caps and rucksacks uh, now stand for prox as proxies for identifying subversive or depraved uh, Muslims in some northern English towns such as Keithley and Bradford. Um, Claire Alexander's work in that area too uh, on kind of bodily resonances of aversion. And this is work that I think gestures towards a still poorly understood vernacular of racial labeling with extraordinarily deep roots. Um, routinely selecting some bodies as inferior, as discrepant, or threatening. In phenotypical judgment, there seems to be a force and a swiftness of response that exceeds the learnt, or indeed also the contingent, as if the sensory stimuli triggered a sorting instinct based on intergenerational, sorry, passed on intergenerationally as a kind of racial faculty. The endurance of race as a primary color of difference is not genetically scripted. I'm not arguing this in the book. But what I am arguing is that it is generationally transmitted through a combination of nurture, institutionalized practice, and biological reflex that becomes a form of cultural reflex too, that return routinely the same subjects as troublesome well before thought. Any vicariously gathered clue then seems to suffice to maintain phenotypical racism. The book therefore argues that the negotiation of everyday multiculture in the workplace, in cities, indeed also in intimate publics, hovers and constantly hovers around these two reflexes. On the one hand, the conviviality of inhabiting shared space and plural affiliations, <coughs> and on the other hand, the forcings of phenotypical sorting, the former pretty much at ease with difference, and the latter an enduring selection mechanism fretting uh, in the background about the figure of the stranger, ready to pounce when legitimated. Which brings me to the third most powerful regulator of public feelings tackled in my book, which is namely the biopolitical machinery of societal framing and defense. This is where the power of the casualization of xenophobia from the three party leaders steps in, I think, with cruel efficacy. How the biopolitical machinery names community and prepares for its defense tips the balance between liberal tolerance and liberal intolerance, as we saw in the EU survey results. And in the process, legitimating phenotypical racism, provincializing everyday multiculture, and justifying war on the stranger as a necessity. Today, in Europe, it's not just the economic circumstances 
and public anxieties that about the future that explain the xenophobic turn. It is above all the coding of future well-being by leaders, opinion makers and the chattering classes backed by an armory of materials that make up a security culture that doing much of the work. Following the, the, the work of the <coughs> Israeli political theorist Adi Ophir, the book argues that what Europe is witnessing may be a slow transition from a providentialist biopolitics, providentialist as in providing rather than godly, to a cat catastrophist biopolitics with distinctive implications for the stranger judged phenotypically as anomalous. Providentialism in the, in the post-war period, symbolized by the social state, I think presented the uncertain future as both knowable and manageable through <coughs> a regime of universal protections, working through a culture of diplomacy and attack, attack particularly towards communism and the post-colonies. But it also worked through the institutions of social democracy and the active management of well-being. And in the providentialist optic, uh, the stranger was folded into um, such an optic of future community. In its worst moments, racially selective and assimilationist, and in its best moments, egalitarian, redistributive, and multicultural. Catastrophism, in contrast, I believe, projects the future as perilous and always uncertain and only partially knowable. Defiant of the all protections culture of risk mitigation that we saw with the providentialist uh, form of biopolitics. It, it accepts the future as unavoidably disruptive and it considers the social state and social democracy to be ineffective. Its watchword is preparedness and its ambitions are to cultivate hypervigilance and steely resolve in order to manage the future, in order to manage community. The calculus of order today, I believe, gathers around a culture of catastrophism, which includes in turn actively naming the enemy, closely tracking potentially dangerous subjects, closing down on the open society, engineering the excitable subject to excise, to remove the anomalous and constantly massaging a narrative of homely, loyal, resilient community. Here, I think the stranger can only return as an, an encumbrance, the focal point of future survival and cohesion. So, without, I argue in the book, dismantling piece by piece the culture of catastrophism that seems to be enveloping us day by day, the marked stranger stands very little chance. So this, in, in a nutshell, is the argument of the book. That what we see happening in the arena of race today, and indeed also other forms of cultural negotiation, is this constant play between what Paul Gilroy would call an everyday conviviality of multiculture, jostling in nervous ways with deep-rooted forms of phenotypical racism in which the same bodies always return at the bottom of the pecking order, um, escalated up or down by uh, the, 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 the regime of biopolitics bio at hand, which changes 
um, between election periods very often. I'll stop there. Okay. Thank you very much, Ash. And next we have Michel Viviorca, Maison Science Long. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, all of, all of you organizers, for uh, discussing our chair of this lunch. When I was preparing this presentation, I was wondering should I put the emphasis on theory, on abstract categories, approaches, on the notion of subject, or should I start with empirical, concrete, even uh, highly political preoccupations? And then I remembered that what I used to say to my students when they are writing their PhD thesis is never separate the theoretical and the empirical, never have a, a broad theoretical part and then an empirical part, try to integrate, try to articulate. So this is what I'm going to try in 10 minutes, no more. So I will start with a very general statement, maybe too general, which is that during the last 20 or 25 years, two important elements have changed, very generally speaking, within our disciplines, within the social science. On the one hand, we now more and more think global. And on the other hand, and this is the title of our meeting, we are in an era where the subject is back, the return of the subject. But it is true, too, that when we deal with social issues such as racism, we don't think so much global. We still accept the methodological nationalism that has been criticized by Ulrich Beck and others. And we cannot accept the concept of subject easily when we deal with racism or issues like that. Because when you read the best sociological literature that uses this concept of subject, it is clear that for people such as Hans Joas or Alain Touraine, it is clear that the subject means the good. Yes, subject means to do the good. So how could you use a notion which is connected with the idea of doing the good in order to analyze the bad, in order to analyze uh, evil? How can we use a notion such as subjectivity, subjectivation, and so on, when you try to explain awful actions such as racism, but also violence, xenophobia, and, and, and so on. So this is, for me, uh, what is at stake in this book. How can we think global? How can we use a concept of subject and deal with evil, deal with violence, terrorism, racism, and things like that? So, I will not now deal with the first point, which is how can we think global when we try to deal with racism. I will deal with only one aspect of the problem, which is the problem of how can we use the notion of subject. And here, uh, I will propose a double idea, which is not so complex. First, in this double idea, I think that we should propose a larger concept of subject that could include not only the good, the capacity to be an actor, to act, but also its contrary, the capacity to destroy, to be an anti-actor, a racist, a violent person, and so on. First point. And the second point is that I think that we should consider that there is no an essence 
of racism or violence, or phenomena like these ones, that racism, violence, and so on result from processes, and that these processes are leading to the contrary of the subject, to the anti-subject. Maybe we should use such notions as desubjectivation in order to understand better how people become racist or violent or xenophobian or whatever. So if we can accept this double approach, trying to propose a, a, a larger concept of subject and trying to uh, understand uh, this dark, not only the dark side of the subject, but also the processes that lead to this dark side of the subject, if we understand that we could use the notion of desubjectivation, but also maybe of subjectivation, this has important implications. For instance, it means that the subject is not given before action or before experience, that it may permanently change, that it is not only a positive virtuality, if not a reality. This could lead to very interesting discussions. Is the subject a virtuality that pre-exists to action or to experience, or is it the fruit of action and experience? say differently, is it a construction or a quasi-anthropological attribute of each individual? So these kinds of ideas need to be discussed, need to be clarified within the social science, but also with philosophers, with psychoanalysts and others. And these kind of ideas, I think, are very useful if we want to analyze precise, precise experiences of racism. And I will just give two or three illustrations what I say. The first illustration can be given by the so-called institutional racism, which was called like this during the late 60s in the US. And for me, the first book where I found this idea of institutional racism was uh, in a book written by activists that belonged to the black power at a moment when the black power was tempted by uh, violence due to the difficulties of their movement. The book was called Black Power. It was written by Stop, uh, Stanley Carmichael and, and uh, Charles Hamilton, uh, two leaders of the Black Panthers. And they say something like, nobody is racist, but there is no access to lodging, there is no access to health, there is no access to school, there is no access to jobs, and so on. And they called it institutional racism, describing this kind of structural mechanisms that make possible a very important racism in situations where nobody will consider himself or herself as a racist. What is very interesting is to try to see what happens when these abstract structural mechanisms are explained to the people that are concerned by the issue. In France, we did one day a very interesting survey, I have no time to, to be more precise, a very interesting survey where with trade unionists, we demonstrated in a, in a, in a factory in a city, in a city, Alès, where there are maybe 25% of migrants people, we demonstrated that in this factory where nobody was from migrant origin, it appeared as a kind of institutional racism, in fact, Every, at, at every moment when a job was free because somebody died or somebody left the city, immediately somebody said, my uncle, my brother, and so on. So there was no racism. 
But what happens when you say to the people, this is the mechanism that makes impossible for migrants or children of migrants to get a job in this factory? What happens with the people that work in this factory? Here, and this is very important, either they say, okay, I, this is true, this is not fair, I accept, I don't say it like that, of course, I accept to be a subject and I accept to try to change the way we select new incomers in the, in the company. But if they say, no, it's okay like that, we don't want to change anything, here becomes the contrary of the subject. Let me add, but I don't want to open a, a discussion on this point, unless you want it, that this return of the subject is connected with the decline of structuralism. The idea of institutional racism was connected with a certain kind of structuralism. And if today we are speaking of subjectivity and the subject, it's also because we are in a time when structuralism is not as strong as in the past. My second uh, example will be given by what was called in the late 70s in the US symbolic racism by some psychologists and political scientists. What was called later in this country, in, in, in the UK, new racism by <laughs> Martin Barker and a little bit after in countries such as France what was called rather cultural racis racism, differentialist racism, a lot of uh, vocabulary. That racism that insists apparently on the physical, uh, not on the physical attributes of the people, but on their cultural, uh, their cultural uh, attributes that are supposed to make these people unable to accept the values of a nation or to accept the values of the society that make black people in the uh, US unable uh, to, uh, to accept the American creed, work, family, or in France that makes them unable to accept the French identité nationale, national identity. And here, I think that it is very uh, important to see that on the one hand, there is a lot of cultural racism in many countries, what was called cultural racism, and at, at the same time, people don't want multiculturalism. More and you say in your book that it is a failure. And uh, I remember that during the recent months, Cameron, Merkel, and Sarkozy, all of them said multiculturalism is a, is a failure. So we are living in a time where you have a lot of the so-called cultural racism, you have a lot of multicultures, of, of cultures, and you have the refusal of this political and institutional treatment of these cultural differences that we can call uh, multiculturalism. So what I want to say is that racism is stronger when we don't have the capacity to live together, to recognize differences, and when we prefer to expel, to segregate, to marginalize the strangers. For a sociologist, it is not difficult to analyze these extensions of these dimensions of racism. They are connected with social evolutions. They are connected with political and ideological changes. They have something to do with the loss of meaning. They develop when some people do not find social solutions to their social difficulties. When people, when political answers are not given to political demands. They have something to do with collective processes of desubjectivation. And 
Today, we are living in a world where some transformation contributes, and this is more or less what you said also, contributes more and more to the rise of racism, cultural fragmentation, but also the rise of memories in the public spheres can be connected with the claims by dominated groups that they should be recognized. But at the same time, this may also mm, uh, lead to racial fragmentation and to racist tensions between minorities or between the dominant group and some of their minorities. Uh, it is a very reactionary temptation that I see in my country at least to consider that the main problem is not only the racism by dominant people, but the so-called anti-white racism. It exists, of course. But those people that insist too much on these dimensions, for me, are very, uh, are very reactionary. I don't say it does not exist. So I would like also to say that ethnicization, racialization, which can be hetero-racialization, that you say, the other says that you are racially different but also auto-racialization. Uh, you say that you belong to a group with a different color. These phenomena participate in this complex production of uh, and extension of racism. And of course, it is clear that a, a, a context of economic and social crisis makes racism more and more uh, important. And so here we have a very interesting uh, problem. If racism is connected with general social, political, cultural changes, on the one hand, if it has something to do with desubjectivation, to say people find other explanations than the good ones to their problems or to the, their representations of their problems, then it can become very political to think about anti-racism. Shouldn't we try? to propose to, under, to, pro, to, to make proposals in order to fight against racism, starting with the idea that if racism has a lot to do with desubjectivation, then less racism means more subjectivation, more subjectivity, people being more and more able to become subjects. Maybe we could say it with another vocabulary. For instance, Amartya Sen, when he says more capabilities, maybe more capabilities could make people less racist. So these are the kind of preoccupations that are in my book. I developed these ideas also as far as the violence is at stake or as far as terrorism is at stake. And uh, well, I would like to thank you. Okay. Thank you, Michel. And we now have our brief responses, first from Claire Alexander. Okay, um, right, well first, I want to congratulate Ash and Michelle on the publication of these very important and challenging books. And I particularly wanted to congratulate Michelle on having the best title for a sociology book ever. Fantastic. I will tell you after the story of the title. Okay. Well, I should say that I was reading this on the train from Manchester on Friday and had some really alarmed looking kind of looks on the paper that I was with. Particularly a very nice kind of middle-aged white woman who was reading Emily Dickinson on her Kindle. Um, I think they thought it maybe was a how-to guide. And it occurred to me that actually that would make a really good sequel, How to Be Evil. So, anyway, maybe I could write that. Um, so one of the things that I think struck me most about both books was the very kind of 
broad and ambitious scope of them, I think. And I was reflecting on this particularly in the light of a column in The Guardian a couple of weeks ago by one of my colleagues on the um, board of the Running Need Trust, Aditya Chakraborty, who's a columnist for them, um, which was about the failures of social science, which he tells me was actually a call to arms rather than an attack. Um, and there he was talking specifically about the financial crisis, but he was arguing more generally that social sciences in general had been ducking the big questions, had stopped short of addressing causes or offering solutions, that had become focused on detail and not on the big picture, which he referred to in a phrase which I really liked as being all cogs, no car. Um, although I'm not sure what he drives, I don't have to find that out. Um, but whether one agrees with this analysis or not, it's true that you couldn't possibly level um, those accusations against either Land of Strangers or Evil, which both offered very strongly ethical visions of what a good society should or could be. And both are broadly concerned, I guess, with what Stuart Hall identified 20 years ago as the, the, what he called the coming issue of the 21st century, which is about how we live with difference, or more than this, I guess, what the consequences would be of not learning this lesson. And in the current climate, with the, the kind of focus on figures such as Andre Brevik or Marie Le Pen holding centre stage, I think the consequences of not learning to live with difference have become frighteningly apparent. So I have three main questions that I want to put to Ash and Michelle. Um, the first is the, the car question, if you like, and to ask you how you envision the role of social science in tackling these very big questions. So Michelle talks in evil about the need for sociology to confront the dark side of social evils, which are very often considered to be natural or outside of analysis, so violence, racism, terrorism, and so on. And my question is really then what a sociological approach would contribute, and having done that then, the kind of impact question if you like, what are the mechanisms or the levers for initiating some kind of intervention that, that transforms that? And I was particularly struck with this question when reading Ash's book and the, the chapter on racism because you comment there on the way in which there are certain kind of historically um, racist discourses that seem to keep coming back when we think we've kind of won that battle and then suddenly back they are again. And they roll back frighteningly quickly the kind of gains that have been made. We've seen that certainly around the multiculturalist agenda. And we see that across Europe and we see it in the UK under the kind of neo-Victorian regime of our current government. And I'm wondering, given the investments that so many people have absolutely in those hierarchies and exclusions, um, of how one shifts that vision more generally of what a good society would look like, particularly for those that are benefiting from the society as it is. Um, so, you know, what's a sociologist to do? And my second and third questions, I guess, are more Cogs questions rather than Carl questions, probably because I'm an ethnographer. So I'm really interested in the level of social practice. Um, so my second question is around the idea of community. And I think that this might be unfair, um, but both of you, of you have very negative, or certainly very sceptical, um, approaches towards the concept of community. And actually, this book in particular is very critical, and I think absolutely rightly so, um, of the way in which this, this term has been used and abused in policy and, and political rhetoric, and the ways in which it comes to substitute for ideas of race, so that ethnic minorities have community and everyone else has society. And while I completely understand and agree with this analysis, and I particularly was pleased that you make the argument for around a very strong kind of, the need for a strong structural account of ideas of difference, focusing on the role of power in constructing those boundaries. But it does seem that, that in both books, when community appears, you see it as kind of intellectually and politically moribund, as really suspect, as potentially dangerous. Michelle talks about <clears throat> the dangers of community allegiances in relation to terrorism and so on. 
But what I've become really interested in is, while we've all been very keen and engaged in de deconstructing community and what that means, I've done that myself, I've become increasingly interested in places where community stops and solidifies and, and how we kind of tackle with that. So what I'm asking basically is, is there something which is salvageable in this concept? And there are two elements which arise from some of the work I'm doing at the moment. And one is around the historical dimensions of community, how we can leave or open, use that notion of community to leave or open new spaces and new kinds of recognition. So, for example, we've been working with the Running Me Trust on um, the Bangladesh Stories website, which was around Bengali migration, the history of Bengali migration, partly to the UK. We've been taking that out into schools and using it as a template for getting young people to think <coughs> about their local histories, their family histories and their community histories as a way of opening up the question of what it means to be British, for example, and, and challenging some of those um, exclusionary ideas. And these have been interesting, I mean, potentially politically, but also emotionally. Um, I think this ties with Michelle's argument partly, but um, my second point is around the effective dimension of community, the way in which people are massively invested in that as a concept. And here I'm thinking of um, Mustafa, who's one of the um, members of my uh, Asian Gang project from some time ago. And when I finished that project, which was about 15 years ago, he and some friends that I had also been working with were involved in a big fight. And Mustafa, um, for reasons of his own, took the blame for, for having organised this fight. And um, to protect his friends, his friends were actually more involved, but he decided that it was better to sacrifice himself because he had no real future in, in his eyes to protect the future of those people that he cared about that he thought could potentially <coughs> do something with their lives. And he got six years in prison and he served three. And I interviewed him again recently. And what was really interesting in me, to me was the way that although 15 years on, they've all got married, he's moved out of London, it's a much more kind of tenuous set of links than he has with those particular people. Those emotional links and that kind of historical link were really incredibly strong and really incredibly powerful. And it was such a, so much a part of how he lived and the choices he made and how he saw himself. So I wonder if there isn't something positive that can be retained in the notion of community, however complex and shifting we may want it to be, and whether we're in danger of kind of throwing out the community baby with the neoliberal bathwater simply because it's become so kind of tainted as a term by, by, by the right. Um, my third question mainly arises from Michelle's book um, and is focused around, I suppose, a new version of the old kind of structure versus agency dilemma, uh, particularly your kind of centralising of the subject. And you characterise contemporary issues as straddling the pole between kind of global transformations and the individual subject. And you say that the focus on the subject has been neglected in sociological analysis. And what was interesting is that actually his book strongly criticises the, the kind of focus on the subjective, the intersubjective, um, so that policies, for example, around racism um, have tended to kind of assume you could just get people to be nicer to each other, have lunch on the, on the Queen's Jubilee, and, and somehow all those other problems will kind of go away. And he criticises the way in which this bypasses the recognition of the complicity of the state um, in creating framing and kind of making possible or impossible those kinds of encounters. So I wondered if between the two of you would like to explore that tension a bit more. I'm wondering where those differences in emphasis come from. Maybe it's disciplinary, maybe it's national, I don't, I don't know. And I also wonder if in the focus on the subject, the social tends to disappear in your analysis. Um, and it may be because you think that, that kind of we can take that for granted because so much work has been done on this. Um, but one of the things I was interested in 
in some of the work I've done earlier, was around the social context and practices of violence. You talk a lot about, you have this whole chapter on violence. And what's been interesting to me when looking at violence is the kind of social rules around violence, who gets involved, what level of violence, what weapons, whether you can call on your older brother or not, those kinds of questions. Um, so those kind of choices and acts are made and understood in maybe local, certainly kind of structured through national discourses, very specific social and cultural channels and frames. And I wonder whether by focusing on the subject as an individual, whether this erases those questions of power and social responsibility. And partly I was thinking about the kind of Andre Brevik question, the question of whether or not he's sane or insane, and, and how that question for me seems to hinge crucially on whether one wants to acknowledge that there's a broader social, um, political, and uh, cultural context to his action um, in which the national and global dimensions are significant players, or whether you want to see it as an internalized individual process. So they're my small questions, which a friend of mine told me were unanswerable, but... But we shall <laughs> see. <I'm trying. laughs> Thanks very much, Claire. And now, Richard Um Well, these are two remarkable books. Uh, and I'd like to just raise some questions about the, the, uh, the theoretical frame in both of these books. The, they do intersect uh, over the uh, issues of uh, racism uh, and of racialized difference. But they're quite distinct works with, I would say, different kinds of uh, ends in view. So I, I've got questions for each of you about the kind of theoretical framework that you have, which is, which is um, uh, uh, stands a little apart from the discussion we've had. Uh, uh, Michel Bjorken's book, it, its title is a provocation theoretically uh, because it asks us uh, to conflate what in philosophy we would call the normal distinction between ethics and morality. Uh, ethics is something that we can give it a, a social account of. But in usual discussions about morality, the notion is that a social account is insufficient. That is, sin is sin, whether you commit it in Chicago, London, or Dakar. <coughs> um, so there's an issue about uh, the kinds of normativity that are, uh, when you use the word evil, uh, you are taking a concept from one domain and bringing it to another, which is fine. But my question to you is whether this distinction at all is meaningful to you between ethics and morals. Um, my second question for you, Michel, uh, is a question most of the people in this room would ask, which is, what's the role of the city? And again, to take your title seriously, is there something that constitutes urban evil? And if so, what is it? Um, and then I want, I want to raise with you uh, what seems to me the heart of your book, which I, I found really, um, uh, really quite powerful, which is in the heart of this book is an account of uh, 
basis of the book is an account of five different kinds of negative subjectivities. Different negative subjectivities which can produce social conditions that uh, Michel Villaborca uh, uh, deems to be evil. The baseline for measuring those is violence. That is, the kinds of subjective formations which can lead people to engage in or accept violence. And my question to you is, should we really use violence as the single measure of, just for convention's sake, unethical, or as I would say, immoral behavior? Is this really the right touchstone for these subjectivities? I, I, I think I share with you, although you, you say you don't want to discuss good in this book, it's hard if you're a moralist not to see one without the other, a kind of contrary formation of subjectivity, which could be called good, which is that the ethical or moral subject is one which is aware of its own limits. That is, that it's a bound, self-consciously bounded subjectivity. And that leads to questions that we can also pose uh, to Ashamine. Because a stranger is exactly such a figure who bounds our awareness of ourselves by being interactively different. <coughs> I was very struck in Ash's book about the lurking presence of Georg Zimmel, the great theorist of uh, the, uh, the stranger. Um, and Zimmel, I, I think like both of you, I said me, uh, sees a stranger as a kind of bearer of the truth of these limits. Somebody who arrives to you who is ineradically different, somebody you can't identify with, somebody you can't understand. For Zimmel, at the, that moment, the presence, the arrival of that stranger is provocation to begin to think about why can't you understand? What can't you understand? Uh, in an ethical, the ethical value of the stranger is precisely to arouse, arouse those kinds of questions. But Zimmel also points to the fact that this figure is an unhappy messenger. And I think that's an issue in your book. Not so much about race as about immigrants. That is the bearer of this provocation is somebody who has experienced displacement. They don't simply arrive somewhere, they've been expulsed somewhere else. And that baggage, if you like, of expulsion, displacement, has inevitably to be communicated to you in the form of what they make you think about yourself. So I, I ask you about the role of displacement, which I think is something that I ask myself in reading your book. Um, Ash, uh, a theoretical framework for Ash is what he calls the politics 
of the encounter, which is something very urban. Something an encounter being something that has an element of surprise, of unscriptedness, of accident, or of the unwanted. And in the politics of the encounter, you're trying to deal with the question of the limits of using issues of human rights as a way to understand the ethics, as I understand it, the ethics of the encounter. That this is something, the politics of the encounter, that the, that experience among strangers is something that transcends the way we think about them as rights-bearing subjects. In Ash's book, for instance, he uses the idea of a craft or task-based encounter as something uh, which creates mutual awareness amongst strangers, but cannot be described fully by the language of rights-bearing subjects. This point close to my, my own heart in, in thinking about about complex cooperation. But is it true? Can you really have an encounter which is meaningful to both parties who recognize each other as both having value if they aren't rights-bearing subjects? question. And finally, I guess a large question which is raised in another way by Claire, which is a difference in tone between these two books, which is Michelle's focus is on the construction and articulation of subjectivity. In Asha Mean's book, uh, there's less focus both on subjectivity but also on uh, the forms of consciousness of the other. And I wondered why that is. Uh, is it that mutual awareness for you, mutual consciousness, is not a constituent element of the network of strangers, awareness of difference in particular? Is this a difference for Michelle? Or is it something that you think arises out of kinds of transactions like craft uh, task interactions, which can be performed without a heightened sense of the awareness of, of others? So these were, as I say, the more theoretical questions that came to me in, in reading both of these uh, extraordinary Okay. Thanks very much, Richard. Let me invite Ash to respond, if you'd like, first. And then okay, thank you. Um, thank you for your really very pointed and receptive comments. Um, I'll start with Claire and then move on to some of Richard's questions. Claire, your first question about wh what is the role of social science <coughs> in tackling the big questions. Um, I think the answer is to just keep on doing it. Um, 
the problem it seems to me is, is at least in this country is whether a public culture exists in which those of us who do social science can also intervene as public intellectuals and whether we can intervene as public intellectuals effectively too and somebody actually listens and takes note and my sense is that um, when we are allowed as social scientists to enter into the field it is only in quick time and for a moment and so some of that um, slow time that's required for ideas on big issues to circulate, to settle, to be chewed over, for us to come back to them um, in a heavily colonized media um, has kind of gone, it's, it's been removed. So th that I see as a, as a principal problem, less to do with the professional conduct of social science and its orientation. I mean, I would have more to add on that through a common project that we're trying to do with, with Richard and Saskia Sassen, but perhaps, perhaps for later. But this I see as a kind of, as a, as a prime question. Who is allowed to occupy the field in which public culture is, is formed and then taken seriously? I mean, on the idea of community, You know, when you write things, you write things often because you're reacting against something. And there's been such a strong communitarian turn, both within social science and in the world of policy, that it gets to a point that you are, well, you are just nauseated, really. And, and, and so you, you look for something slightly different. And I think what I've settled for in this book is, is perhaps to remain sensitive to some of the affects that circulate in the notion of community, but then to steer the direction towards new affective impulses to something called the commons, in which, in a sense, community, well, communities can intersect around shared values or shared affinities, shared uh, emotions, um, so that those things that are to be valued and positive about communities in a bounded sense can actually become the resources of community defined as open society. I think that, that's what I'm trying to get at um, in the book. And so I, I recognize, if you like, some of the positive things that hang on community, particularly those who have had no community as such. But I want to try and um, extrapolate and look for spillovers, spill really. Um, and similarly, the, sub the subject <coughs> is not in the book, it is in abundance in Michelle's book, so why isn't it present in my book? And I think this begins to take me towards Richard's, some of Richard's questions too. Um, you see, I, I, I think that we live in an age of hyper-subjectivity. Not a day passes without the social being reduced to the subjective and forms of subjectivity which are both either individual-centered or somehow collectively formed. And those things that happen in the background, in the pre-subjective, or beyond the subjective, and I might have got it completely wrong in the book, 
uh, live in a kind of long shadow um, and do not appear either in social theory of our times or in the world of um, politics and ethical practice. So, so I think the underlying question in my book is how, how might it be possible to think the good society as a society in which subjects are not constantly forced to display their subjectivity? Um, and particularly in the instance of, let us say, beleaguered immigrants and minorities um, who don't run, want to run the gauntlet of subjectivity, okay? who actually just want a space uh, in that in that society to, 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 to exist without um, their subjectivity either being paraded or being spotlighted or reduced to a singular subjectivity. So I'm kind of interested in plural forms of subjectivity in the plural society um, and take some kind of pressure away from this onus that we seem to have created on this strange category called subjectivity. But Richard, I think, I think you're right. I mean, of, of course, the figure of the stranger has always been the, the pebble in the pool. Um, and all sorts of ripples emanate from the presence of the figure of the stranger. And I think, in a sense, that's what I am trying to deal with and negotiate in, in, in the book. You know, when the stranger... But what I think I'm especially interested in the book is... When the stranger appears as an unhappy messenger, um, who ultimately ends up be, being and remaining unhappy? And it's a curiosity, partly because of the biopolitics of our times, that the returns there are never to the center of the majority itself. Okay. So isn't it a curiosity that at the moment the figure of the stranger um, elicits no self-reflection as such within the society, if, they, if that's what you were getting at, uh, which I, I, think, I think it was. Um, and your observation that the book does not then deal with the migrant as the bearer who's been expelled is, is absolutely spot on. And then I think that's a, kind of, that's a gap in, 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 in the book. Um, I wasn't ultimately, I think what I was more interested in was um, everyday practices of displacement once the stranger has arrived and is amidst us, yeah. um, and who then is deemed the stranger. And so I'm much more interested in the kind of living social practices of everyday inclusion and exclusion, of integration and integration. But, but I think the bigger point that you made um, which, in, in a sense, the Zimmel point is, is about the stranger, in a sense, becoming a mirror of the society in which the stranger exists, and what that society does with the figure of the stranger um, is, is, is an absolutely crucial point. And I think my glib answer would be that, for at the moment, I think the time we live in the mirror has not even gone up. Uh, there is no mirror. Uh, that's, that's a great tragedy. And I think in the, in the absence of 
such mirrors and smoke screens being and becoming available, um, then <coughs> what my kind of normative project in the book is, is, to, is to have those sorts of mirrors and smoke screens. Um, precisely because what I'm interested in bringing to the fore in the book is not just that which occurs in the subconscious, this is apropos your point about the right-wearing subject, but also that which goes on under the radar in the world of everyday social practice, you know, of which we see an abundance in your last book, um, where all sorts of negotiations go on almost every day, which are actually quite of quite a virtuous nature, of a positive nature, in which the encounter between strangers um, becomes an encounter which if it is between rights-bearing subjects, what seems to matter there is at least two things. As you say in your book, it's that study, craft of collaboration, of being together, which produces a certain agreement, a certain consensus, a certain ability to, to move on. To, to kind of almost shed the subjectivity that you brought into that encounter. And that process of shedding is what really interests me, as it interests you. Um, whether that's in the context of actual, real craft cultures, or the production of music, or in my case, the circulation of public space. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know um, what happens when buildings are able to speak. And I'm kind of curious to know what happens to people when they dwell in their environment along with other people in such ways that in the end the, the rights-bearing nature of subjectivity is kind of put in its place. That, that's what really interests me. Okay? Um, I, I think I might stop there for the moment, if that's okay. Okay. Michel? Just... About the title of my book, this wonderful title. In fact, this book is a translation of some chapters of a book written in French. And when John Thompson from Polity Press told me, I would like to translate your book, but we cannot publish all of it. We want terrorism, racism, violence. And I, sa I said, evil. He said, yes. I said, okay, we have the title. <laughs> but then, to finish with this, to finish with this, when I arrived one month ago in New Delhi, I was very happy to know that my book was going to be published uh, very soon. And there was a table where they displayed a certain number of books, and one of the books which I have seen, the title was After Evil. <laughs> <laughs> but now let me be more serious. And nobody's in After Evil, because when, when I wanted to buy it, it has gone. So, <laughs> <laughs> I will buy it. so now let me be more serious. So your first point, your very important first point. I don't believe that social science can be directly useful to politicians, to politics. I don't believe it. Sometimes it may happen. Sometimes you have a, a very brilliant sociologist that becomes president of his country, or that will uh, be the main advisor of a, a prime minister, or whatever. But usually our ideas, because our ideas are critical, and because our analysis are not exactly what's politicians' needs, usually. So the way we 
we exert an influence exists, but it is never or almost never direct. I could be more precise if necessary. So there is an influence. We we need social science. Our societies need social science, but not with this idea of the social the sociologist becoming the advisor of the good politician. I don't believe so much in, in, in it. Second point, I am obliged to be very brief. Excuse me, but uh, so, um, but before my speaker. Second point, it's a very general point. For you, most of you are native English speakers, so you don't meet these kind of problems that a French or a German or an Italian will meet. We have problems of translation. For instance, in France, when we say le mal, I translate it to English by evil, but it is not exactly that. It's much, there are some different, important differences. When we say race, it's not the same concept that we have. When we say communities, it's not exactly the same meaning, and so on. So there is a problem, and this is a problem that people that are not uh, speaking English as native understand or feel much, much, much stronger, maybe, than, than other people. And I, why do I say that? Community. The French, in my, in my, in my country, the French distinguish between communi communauté, communities, and communitarism, which is tendencies to have the law of the group more important than individuals and so on. So, I don't know if it is exactly like that here, but I will say now very clearly, I, I, don't, I would never say that a community is necessarily good or bad. I mean, a community can bring resources to people that could not have these resources to exist, for instance. The danger is communitarism, that is what we call French called communitarism, which is not communitarianism, in a, it's different. And, but I think that we are in a world where we are, or in societies where we face two main dangers. On the one hand, the obvious dangers of communitarism, but on the other hand, the dangers of what Karl Marx used to call abstract universalism. That is to say, there should be no minority, no community, and so on, because equality should exist. It's a wonderful discourse, but it's an abstract discourse. So it be, and it can become, it, it can lead to very uh, important problems of violence and so on. So two dangers and not one: communitarism as the excess of community, and abstract universalism as a total lack of recognition and, and, and so on. So this would be my second point. My third point, I don't answer to all your points, the, the Norwegian case, Brexit. It's a very important case for us. Why? Because we hesitate between two kinds of bad analysis. But we hesitate. On the one hand, there is a tendency to psychologize. To psychologize. <coughs> it is insane. I mean, it's a, it's a problem of personality and so on. But we know that what he did had something to do with the situation in his society, with uh, uh, migrants, Islam, and, 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 and so many other things that exist. But so we can go on the other danger, which is social, extreme sociologism, sociolo too, too much sociologization. I don't know the English word. Which means we will explain him by Islam, migrants, and, 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 and the general atmosphere, and the extreme rights. No. So there is something which maybe we sociologists cannot explain, which is how is it possible that such 
an act was done. The French call it, I don't know, think should passage à l'acte. This is for me the mystery. Of course, there are some psychological dimensions, personality and whatever. Of course, there is some sociological aspects. But so many people have personality, and so many people are, are, are concerned that what happens in their society. Why does this person did it? And so this is for me the mystery, and this is where maybe other people can explain things better than, than us. Then. I would like to, to pass to uh, Richard's remarks, and we'll just take some of them, Richard, because it's so huge. In my vocabulary, maybe, but I'm maybe wrong, but I would distinguish be between ethics and moral with the idea that ethics is not connected with cultural values. It's upper. It's, up, it's totally abstract. It's out of, out of what is at stake in your society why moral is connected with values, with culture, with so. So, and this is why I think it is so important to, to discuss the notion of human rights. I will defend the notion of human rights as a universal yeah. category. But people will say, no, it is the way the West wants to, us to, to sing, and we, Chinese or Indian or whatever, we consider that it is not universal, that it's a Western invention. So, is Human rights are human rights. Ethics or are they moral? To say it like that. This would be maybe the kind of discussion I would like to do. Then you have a second question, very interesting. The notion of urban evil, is it possible or not? I think, well, first of all, as everybody says, um, today more and more people are living in cities or in town. The world is more and more urban. So we should consider that there is no more specificity. At least trying to think about your remarks, I was thinking, <coughs> what are the worst evil events in the recent years? And some of them are not urban. If you take the genocide in the lakes, they are not. They are in the real uh, land. And not as important, but we are in my country, in France, we are having elections. And one discovery during these elections is that most of the people that vote for the National Front don't live in cities or in big cities. They live in rural areas. That does not mean that they are peasants, but they live out of the city. So evil is much more, in this case, out of the city. So this does not mean that there is no evil in the city. But So we can try to, to make it to think about that, these people that are expelled out of the city or that try to find a solution to their social difficulties by living far from the city, which is the case of many people. These people vote for national for I can I could explain this importantly. So it would be interesting to discuss this, but you are right, it's interesting to oppose the, the, the city or the urban evil and the rural one. But as you can see, the rural one is not only archaic, traditional, and no, it can be very, very modern. Like then uh, I was I was trying to, to, to answer, and this will be my last point, to your question. Is violence the main or the only measure of uh, what you call immoral or amoral behavior, conduct? And my first reaction was to say, no, of course, you can have very amoral behaviors that are not violent. But 
I was thinking, well, try to find good examples. And all my examples lead to the idea of indirect results which are violent. I mean, it's not directly violent, but the result will be violent. And why is violence so immoral or immoral from my point of view? I think it is because it destroys. And when you destroy, you cannot repair. When you destroy a, a culture, when you destroy a people, when you destroy a person, you cannot do anything that would repair. And you know, if you if you destroy a building, you can repair the building. If you if I rob you, if I take your money, maybe I will have to give it back to you. And, and so, if I don't use violence to take your money, so. But when you the extreme violence. Is the, it, it's something for me extreme because it's destruction that cannot have any reason. So this would be so. I'd, uh, trying to think yeah. about what you said, this would be my, my answer at that stage. But I, I would like to finish with one word. I like this kind of discussion because at the end, I don't have better solutions, I have more perplexity. <laughs> <laughs> I have the feeling that my level of, level of perplexity is, is rising. It's <laughs> upper. This is very interesting. Well, it is not the job of the chair to have any ideas, but I can't resist oh. sticking one in. You amaze me. <laughs> and I simply note the an interesting topic for further consideration. What, what sorts of um, oppositions Ash and Michelle each frame? We've talked a lot about what each is saying is so in the world, and possibly each is good, but what each is in some sense um, resisting. And Ash talked about resisting the hypersubjectivity of a sort of constant demand for subjectivity but also the idea of community as so commonly deployed and even the idea of rights and sought out a language of encounters and spaces um, that would um, evade, it seemed to me, each of those, yet he started with the problems that um, he saw in people who regret multiculturalism, perhaps racism, xenophobia, but claim somehow um, liberal, that all of these versions of these are necessary for liberalism. So I'm struck in this that a variety of um, isms and attitudes appeared as the things that are making um, Ash nauseous, as humanitarianism was, and that um, a, these, this look at encounters and spaces in the biopolitics of this moving out of it. And in, in rather considerable contrast, Michel is frustrated by um, structuralism and the way in which it um, um, occludes action. And the illusion is frustrated also by the illusion that all action could be good and constructive and the need to see that which destroys. And so he seems interested very much in claiming responsibility and in searching out ways in which there is some strong idea of responsibility, or there can be, and affective investment and taking it seriously. So it struck me that there is 
for all of the similarities and congruence in these accounts, something significantly different in what was motivating each of them, and what was motivating this search for, for the role of encounters and spaces um, versus subjectivity and community alike. And then in Michelle's case, the search for some kind of subjectivity that would not just be the pablum of all subjectivity is good, but would really enable us to get at an idea of responsibility in a serious sense. Let me now take the prerogative not of calling on them to answer, but inviting any of you that might have questions to speak for a few moments, and then we will uh, have a book signing and refreshments outside. Any questions? Comments? Please. Could you say a bit more about the French resonance of le mal as opposed to evil? Yeah. It's a difference. Yes. What do you, what, could you explore a little bit for us the French concept? For instance, uh, in French, le mal may, may mean also suffering, which is far from evil. The, the word mal. In English, if I say evil, the notion of suffering is, is not, I think, uh, present. That's not yeah. actually true. But we're talking oh, no, I mean, um, I, well, I will say it differently. My translator <laughs> told me there are huge problems. How should I translate le mal here and there and there? And sometimes you use the word suffering, sometimes you use the word evil, for instance. Which means it's not exactly the same meaning. And that a distinction between the bad and the evil is so deeply ingrained in part of the English usage in a way that is not coded into this French usage of the mal. Yeah. So when you say j'ai mal à la tête, that doesn't mean I'm having, I'm having. I have to use the What does that mean? J'ai mal à la tête. I've got a headache. I have a headache. So, we could take a dictionary and try to, to look at it very carefully. Uh, in the beginning of my, can I take, take the, in the beginning yes. of my book, I, I, there is a very interesting uh, list of evil by Leibniz. I, I, I just read it. It's Leibniz, the trend, I, I hope it's a good translation of Leibniz in English. <laughs> he says, there are three dimensions of evil. Metaphysical evil consists in mere imperfection, physical evil in suffering, and moral evil in sin, le péché in France. So, I am not sure that we could jump so easily from le mal to evil. If I, were, if I write this book in French, I call it le mal, but it would not be as strong as in English. Any other last comment, question? Please, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, this is just um, rather than a, is it? It will make you almost happy if you take the microphone. Okay, <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> um, I suppose going back to this issue of translation made, made me wonder, because I, I was wondering throughout that the opposite of le mal is definitely le bien. Uh, but um, the opposite of evil is somehow uh, more more varied. And one of the questions that um, that kept popping up as, as you were talking, but also throughout your remarks, Richard, was where does innocence 
uh, stand in all this. Uh, we've had a discussion about evil, but um, and 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 good has crept in, thank God. Um, but 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 innocence hasn't, and I wonder how that connects to uh, morality and ethics and, and the distinction between the two that, that that you were raising and where it sits here. Well, I'd have to a answer you as uh, an American, since our culture celebrates. Innocence. So we know where that leads us. Um, I this I think a serious answer to this, and something I've thought about without never being able to put my hands around what to do with it, is that one thing I like about living in cities is that they relieve us of innocence. That unaware kind of where that goes, we'll have to ask people are dead. But uh, <laughs> there is something about the construction of urban life which can avoid that kind of blind, unthinking. I'm such a nice person. I'm so sorry. I just killed you. I'm so sorry. You know that kind of um, American version of innocence. And I think it's one of the reasons that Americans have classically hated cities, because it asks them to be too conscious, too adult. And is this an insight into the Le Penistes as well? No, I don't know <laughs> nothing about Le Penistes. Uh, um, Let's see the evidences. Let's have a better question up here. <coughs> Um, yeah, can I just, well, um, I was just wondering about the notion of super diversity. Um, I mean, I, I thought that multiculturalism was dead and now we have super diversity. So I'm thinking of, you know, for example, what happened in South Africa that people turn on the new migrants and so on. Or in Britain, now with the Poles and Eastern European migrants, you have very different migrants as opposed to yeah, I mean, yeah. Okay, I think that's right. Uh, but the people who are against multiculturalism are also against super diversity. And so, super diversity, there are people talk about super, super diversity in two different ways. People like Steve Vertovich and other sociologists who write about. Super diverse society essentially are saying, look, you know, the presence of the stranger is constitutive. We are hyper diverse society, and, and there's no there's no turning back. Um, but I think the normative interpretation of super diversity is it's a bad thing, in the same way as people want to dismiss and dispel multiculturalism. The danger of super diversity as well is that it ignores older traditions of kind of racism. That it assumes yeah. that we can talk, you know, you no longer have to talk about <coughs> racism because we've got so many different kinds of people. That actually, the fact that you know inequality has grown, the gaps in inequality in the UK, for example, are bigger now than they were in the eighties, <coughs> is no longer an issue because we can't trace those patterns in a nice, easy way. So I think there's a danger mm -hmm. with, with that argument too. Yeah, I agree. <coughs> um, well, thank you very much uh, to. Um, both of you are very interesting and obviously to the panellists as well and um, it's a great honour to have um, Professor um, Calhoun here uh, today 
Uh, welcome to the LSE. Uh, I think I'd like to direct this question uh, to you, Sam. Uh, <laughs> although, if any of the other distinguished panellists um, would like to contribute, then that's fine. Um, I um, in recent years, there has been a move towards a more naturalist approach uh, to the social scientist, and I think this connects a little bit to your question with regards to the, the, the role of the social scientist. Um, this move um, is um, seen among, amongst some as based on a, convic on a conviction that an application of rigorous analysis, uh, clear, unambiguous thinking, explicit um, categories and definitions is essential in helping, to un helping us to understand the world and to manipulate it. Now, we are living through a time of enormous upheaval and social and economic change throughout the world, not just in Europe. Um, indeed, racism, xenophobia, um, as well as um, many other uh, social evils are part of what we are going through at the moment. My question is, whilst I recognise that there is a value in this sort of work, indeed it, prov it provides narrative for people like us to conceptualise the world um, and other armchair academics. I'd like to find out what the actual real practical value of this knowledge is <coughs> in changing the wider society. You're asking Craig. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. So the question is, what is the practical value in changing the wider society? No, what is or the practical value of this? Of, of this a naturalist approach to thinking about that? Um, well, I, I don't think that there or is Or of this much panel to the project of tr changing the actual society. What, what is the value of uh, the knowledge that um, can be generated within this epistemological perspective in changing the wider society, as opposed to this knowledge giving us a, an interesting and, and, and very sophisticated narrative to understand right. it. Okay, so let me try that. Where this knowledge is going to mean what Ash and Michelle had to say. Yes. Um, the, I think that one issue is what is the place of narratives, interpretive frameworks, and so forth in um, action to change the world. So I'm not sure I see these as so completely discrete. So my sense is that, that if you um, are interested in changing the world, and doing that by action, not just in noting that there are changes in the world, but in making change happen in some way, that implies being able to take hold of the world, being able to take hold of yourself as an actor, um, and so it implies, in fact, um, interpretation. It's not uh, something that is free from that uh, cultural or otherwise informed interpretation. And the, in this, in relation to what um, Ash and Michelle have had to say about this, I think um, is interesting. It's not, if I take a moment to go back to it, one of the things I think is really interesting what Ash has to say is that we keep enacting a paradoxical set of oppositions because of some of the ways in which we take hold of the world. So at least my interpretation of part of what Ash has to say in this is that we get into very peculiar um, situations where we try to say things like, well, 
our culture is just naturally more tolerant than those others, and therefore we must be intolerant towards those others to preserve our tolerance. And in other ways, in this, and that this is a performative contradiction that we get into not simply by being illogical, but by being embedded in this production of, of opposites, if, if I'm understanding some of his account rightly. And that part of what he wants to do is to say we um, won't get out of this by um, embracing either side of it better. It's neither going to be a better universalistic liberalism nor a better multiculturalism, that what we need is to grasp the role of um, physical, spatial settings and embodied activity and encounters in them and begin to think about how to redesign these, about how to work on this if we want to produce effective change. So I see this as potentially um, holding clues towards change in the world, but saying that change may come out of changing the spaces in which we interact, not just changing um, this, or not just um, reproducing this, this framework in which we understand it. And so there's a critique of a framework of understanding there that has implications for action. In Michel's work on, on evil, where I think there is this tension, because I think Ash wouldn't embrace the analytics of evil in this, but I'd like to ask him that. Um, my sense is he would see this as still getting caught in that um, duality that is producing the paradoxes. But Michel is um, taking this up for all of these issues of, of translation about whether it's exactly what evil connotes in English or not. Um, partly because he sees a trend towards a variety of, of um, ways in which people let themselves off the hook, as we would say. That is, um, refuse responsibility. The structures are out there. That's just the way it is, including a naturalized view of the world as just the way it is in some sense. Therefore, in a variety of ways, um, action that appears as, um, to change that appears as impossible, but also responsibility for their own perpetuations or perpetrations of evils um, is lost in this, in a sense of responsibility. So I see him um, in this offering us an account in which we need to be able to take ourselves as actors seriously, which means not imagining such a benign voluntarism as all action will be good. And I see a, a partial correction to his own mentor, Alain Torrens, account of action in this recognition of the evil. Um, but in order to be able to act, and so precisely his, his account of, of violence and destruction, the obliteration of that which we can make in common, which is action. Now, so I see these as pushing in two different directions, but I see them as sharing an idea that how we understand the world does, in fact, matter a great deal to whatever course of social change we could plan, whatever sorts of actions we can take in it. Did that do terrible violence to either of you? No, <laughs> In that case, there's a book signing outside. <laughs> there are refreshments. And I will answer any other hard questions. <laughs>